Can we desensitize? Can we measure a memory? Let me play my part. Check to hate. Like, is that real? Did that happen? Like, the structure of your brain actually changes. And do you still feel that every day? And then it got time for guitars. Eating disorder, like, I didn't want to die. Tendencies. But I didn't want to live. Girl. You gotta go in the hospital. You feel powerless because the body has a fear reaction. The opportunity to empower. No one can take away my power. I won't take myself out. Artists that are true like that, those are the ones that tend to create change. The reading and writing departments of the memory in the brain has massive implications for PTSD. Mm-hmm. Let's bring it back around to um, people trying to consolidate their memories, which is a phrase that someone taught me the other week. I interviewed someone who's an EMDR trainer, um, and she was like, unconsolidated memories are kind of where the, where the pain is, where the horror is, and the stuff that people haven't quote-unquote processed or mm-hmm. colloquially we might say gotten over. Mm-hmm. Um, can you walk me through some of the implications that this new research is showing for recovery? Yeah, I think it, it brings up a couple um, hot topics that are currently being studied in science. It's this idea of um, how do you how do you extinguish, say, a fear response that's associated with a particular memory. Um, this is a big area of neuroscience that's been around for a while, but we're now throwing new fancy tools at it that neuroscience is developing. Um, kind of the idea of if someone with PTSD is generalizing some traumatic experience to now things in everyday life, how can we extinguish or suppress or unlearn that association with everything? Um, One patient example that comes to mind is an individual who was a war vet and the sound of anything that sounds like a propeller or helicopter triggers a flashback and that becomes terrifying and incapacitating for that individual. Um, How do we in the brain begin to figure out how is that association between a propeller sound um, that triggering to access those memories of being back in war. Um, and can we understand the neurobiology of it? But people have been trying to, even with, um, with, uh, EMDR, um, and even with behavioral therapies, people have been studying this from a behavioral psychology standpoint for a while. How do we unlearn or train the brain to not overgeneralize those traumatic experiences with everyday, um, everyday experiences out there? Um, like, what if this helicopter that is airlifting patients onto the building next to you um, actually doesn't sound exactly like the helicopter that is that you had experienced during that traumatic experience? And can we kind of undo those generalized associations? That's huge. Um, and so kind of exposure therapies is kind of like that. Um, that's, that's true for PTSD, people with, uh, with OCD, um, individuals who suffer from those ailments. The field has been trying to do this for a while, just behaviorally. Can we desensitize those generalizations that become triggering? Um, But where neuroscience is coming in is we're trying to understand the neurobiology. Could we directly, whether it's going into the brain surgically or understanding the behavior of what we're doing and then scanning the brain to see if we're actually causing those changes, can we figure out how to weaken those associations that are becoming hyper-generalized? That was one of the things that was uh, quote-unquote prescribed for us uh we were driving along one day and 
and she goes, oh shit, there's such and such place. And it was like where one a really horrible thing had happened to her. And I was kind of freaked out and she was kind of freaked out and it, it kind of got her spiraling downward. And when she mm-hmm. mentioned it a while later to uh, her therapist, um, we got prescribed to go back there. She's like, okay, you know, with Teresa, it's called a therapy drive. You're going to go back to the place and you're going to reprocess and you're going to do it with someone there who loves you in, in, a, in a place in where a you feel safer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why when people talk about safe space, I just want to make sure that they understand like clinically that it does have a role. It doesn't yeah. mean someone in college doesn't want anyone to ever disagree with them. <laughs> that's not a safe space. That's a stupid space. Um, but yeah, so this idea of a therapy drive, obviously she, you know, hmm, we did it a couple times and um, I don't, she was quiet. I don't know what she was going through when we yeah. did that or if we had been able to do it for years, if she could have reprocessed those memories. But um, the idea of actually facing it is what makes it get better. And the, thing, the, way that, the ways that we hide from it kind of help it perpetuate mm-hmm. is that an oversimplification um Can we talk about exposure as a cornerstone of clinical practice yeah i mean the tricky part is it doesn't always work for everyone mm. and i think trying to understand um why that's the case i think is the the interesting path to go down like exposure therapies work well for people and not at all for others and it um this idea of actively avoiding these uh, these certain circumstances that are now perpetuating um, those symptoms of PTSD, I think it's it's unclear to know if that's perpetuating it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where neuroscience is trying to come in. Like, are we are we trying to figure out ways to supplement exposure therapy to make it more effective for individuals, or at least can we figure out if these avoidance behaviors are worsening the situation or not? Yeah, um, or if the exposure is worsening it. Because if I had a magic wand, I'd say, okay, neuroscientist, let's go ahead and do the exposure therapy, but let's mitigate the risk mm-hmm. of ripping these old wounds open right. and just literally making everything worse and setting right. the person back 10 years in their recovery. And every time I, I mean, every time we bring up where's the neuroscience in this, is this a way we can just like objectively measure what's happening, right? That's, that's what I did in some of my lab work is could we measure a memory? Could we physically put a number on an experience and figure out how much this synapse is changing? Right. Do you measure current, or what? Are you, what are you measuring inside yeah. the human brain? And, Voltage. Um, well, there's only so much you can do in a human brain, which is why we turn to some animal studies, right, where we can actually take parts of the brain tissue out. But the laboratory I worked in with with Mark Thomas, they're an, an old school electrophysiology lab. They me- they take neuron A and neuron B that's listening to neuron A. We artificially stimulate neuron A and see how much neuron B responds. And we can measure the amount of voltage or current that passes through these two sets of neurons and then understand how an experience that you go through can change how strong these two neurons are communicating. And we can measure that, right? I can measure that voltage. I can measure that current and I can see how much is one neuron listening to the other neuron and how much does an experience change it? Because that's one way a memory is stored. Mm-hmm. is all these different neurons are switchboards changing how strongly they communicate with each other. So going back to just something like exposure therapy, first of all, can we develop the technologies to measure that in a human without cutting open the brain, which people are working on? Can we actually figure out non-invasive ways to monitor these types of electri- electricity measures? And the other thing is, can we can we track this through therapy so that we can at least start to put numbers on what we think these behavioral measures are doing? Um, and can we understand it to a degree where we know this is predictive of resiliency? 
or we know this is actually predictive of a path towards relapse or vulnerability. I think that's where we're trying to get at. We're not trying to necessarily develop magic pills to fix brain cells in ways yeah. that are better than what we currently have, although people are working on that. But I think it's to try and put a little bit of going back to what we said about um, if someone comes in with chest pain, like I want some objective lab measures that I can track progress on. That's more than just symptom output. Um, and I think we're, we're working towards that. So a couple other questions I have. I want to make sure, I'm going to list them so I don't forget. Okay, sure. I want to talk about the social landscape and how people choose what people to keep in their lives and stuff. I think that's a big part of recovery and a big part of, like we said, affecting or being the architect of your own environment. A lot of that isn't just where you go and what you do and what your job is, but who do you keep around you and how do you, you know, how does removing some of those toxic influencers change your unconscious, you know, mental operations and stuff. But before we get to that, I want to say something positive. I saw once this interesting quote, um, placebo effect is proof that the mind can heal the body. We're going to get philosophical here and optimistic. What are your thoughts yeah, on that? Yeah, I mean, we're not even philosophical. I just, placebo effect. Um, <laughs> it's real. Yeah, I think uh, like that's where like the interesting stuff is happening, right? When someone runs a drug study and they figure out that people's pains improved not by the actual drug, but in the placebo, placebo group, that's the interesting stuff. Right? What the hell is going on in the brain where that something is causing an effect that makes pain decrease or makes some biological disease that you're measuring improve right? without the magic drug that you actually think you're doing? That's the interesting stuff. What right? if the magic drug is self-worth? They think someone cares about me. So I'm, I'm worth healing. I'm worth getting better. Yeah. Um, and then that starts to heal them, you know? I mean, the uh, so after I, I went to Venice, I went to another conference in Dublin, and it was on um, decision-making. It was a whole conference on decision-making. And there's a lot of interesting research on belief systems. Mm. And your ability to have some sort of belief in that a certain treatment for depression would work impacted its outcome of the drug. Um, these are the these new ketamine treatments for for depression for people who are have treatment resistant depression. They can get ketamine. It's a kind of a newer avenue of therapeutic research. The interesting thing about this drug is the drug itself can cause people's belief systems to change. Right, like faith. Kind of like in an abstract term, just like um, they're like convictions with certain types of thought processes become wow. more flexible. Oh, and I think the idea from a psychology standpoint is that therapeutic benefit for individuals who otherwise never saw a light at the end of the tunnel could take the edge off and see, well, things could get better. And that is actually where a lot of this therapeutic power comes from, from ketamine. Understanding that from a neurobiological level, I'm not going to get into right now, but the idea is on top of this drug, drug's ability to change someone's flexibility in just their convictions about things in general. The interesting thing, flipping that on its head, is someone's belief that this treatment will be successful even prior to getting the drug impacted its likelihood of success. Wow. Right? And that brings up a whole bunch of things about placebo effect. Or I wouldn't even call it placebo effect. I'd call it like mental priming, right? Like you're putting the brain into some primed state before the drug gets on board that is now synergistically boosting its effect. Which, wow. which is, has some real biology to it. But, totally. what, but what the hell is going on in there? That's super interesting. And I remember asking the person presenting this research, 
is does it come down to education? Like what happens if before you even start this treatment course, like you have long education sessions with people about neuroscience, about the neurobiology of what's happening in their brain and about their histories and about how that's sculpting to the point now where if you actually did that for a couple months before even starting the treatment, their belief about their likelihood of success probably is going to change. And then that's now going to improve their success rate once they get the drug. Um, so this placebo effect or just this idea of knowledge about neuroscience and what is going on in in your own brain um has therapeutic power in and of itself totally it's like you're prescribing hope yeah <laughs> it's it's in, it's insane um and so i don't know if i like the word placebo i think it's um it's the it's the mysterious parts of the brain that we just don't understand how it works yet which it has to be the vast majority of it right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. especially if we can't put things to physical locations it's more processes that are all everywhere at the same time it kind of throws everything on its head. Yeah. So that, but what you said earlier was really intuitive to me because I think associating overcoming depression with flexibility makes perfect sense because it's such a rigid problem to have. You get you get in thought patterns that play on a loop. My life is worthless. I suck. I I suck at everything I ever try. Why was to, why is tomorrow yeah. going to feel any better than today? And they play on a loop very rigidly. So the yeah. idea that flexibility is part of the antidote makes complete sense to me. And I and I still believe that it's probably just one aspect or one flavor of someone's depression. Yeah. And that there are people who don't have issues in that department. Mm. Um, That's interesting. But yeah. Okay, so let's talk for a second about uh, decision-making because you keep coming back to that. And I had something I read recently online that was really interesting. I was in this forum. A lot of people had disordered eating uh, in this forum, and I was just kind of reading. I just lurk. And these people were going on and on and on about uh, how they got their their relationship with food under control. And this person blurted out at kind of the end of the thread and just blew my mind. They said, I eat whatever I like, but that's from years of teaching myself to like things that are good for me. I was like, holy shit. You could apply that to so many aspects of life. I do what I, let's take food out of it. I do what I like, but that's because I trained myself to like things that are good for me. That has, that has implications with addiction. Yeah. What's your definition of, how do you define what's good for you? How do you learn that? Yeah. Well, society. I mean, well, I mean in this in this case it's it's objectively measurable, you know. There's obviously uh you can measure nutrition. You can you can measure some things to do with food, but we all know like let's say something obvious, let's dumb it down. A walk in the a walk a hike in the woods is better for me than um doing a few lines of cocaine. They might both feel good, but they'll feel good in different ways. And there's that concept of the future that we talked about earlier. Can, right. I, can I conceptualize beyond immediate gratification? And this idea of teaching ourselves to like things that are good for us is just like, to me, that's so empowering. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of thoughts about that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you hear this in all sorts of people who do have like healthy eating habits right? Tend to just like love these like boring cardboard tasting things that no, none of us <laughs> like to eat, right? Like how do they even get to that point? Um, Mom, yeah. She loves cooked vegetables. What's right. wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, um, at the end of the day, I think it's all relative, like how we value things that are sculpted by our experiences. But as you put it, there are things that are objectively probably not in our best interest. If it's going to cause you to have an increased likelihood of overdosing, or have issues with your relationships or schoolwork or authority figures, um, right? Like if that's 
that's why I brought up society, where a lot of these things are kind of defined by ramifications in a social context or social setting, which are how a lot of addictions are defined, right? How do you mean? The, the way addiction's diagnosed, um, besides talking about cravings or internal drive to pursue drugs, is if it's impacting work, school, if you're putting yourself in risky situations, that's kind of how... Psychiatrist oh, diagnosed. Okay. I right, thought you were going to say like addiction is a social construct. I'm like, eh, no, but I don't a, know about that. <laughs> but, but like you know, one of the d- diagnostic criteria for addiction is if it has, if you have detrimental effects on your schoolwork, your, your work life, relationships, responsibilities, find yourself in risky situations, um, getting arrested, having legal implications, whatever, whatever. That, that is, these are the diagnostic criteria that actually define some of the substance use disorders because you can't just run a blood test but so you look at the person's life right yeah so i think um how do you define what's good for you mm. um where end of the day if it's going to keep you alive that's a good definition but if it's going to prevent you from all these other run-ins um i'm trying to trying to come up with a way or, or how this fits into your analogy of you do the good. You've trained yourself to do good things because they're good for you, and you've trained yourself to like those things. Trained yourself to to want things that are good for you, and let's. It doesn't. Again, it doesn't have to be food. It can be people. There's yeah. a lot of people who are attracted to people that are very destructive, and people who are in abusive relationship over and over and over again and again, person after person. And one day they look in the mirror and like, is there a part of me that that seeks this out? But I don't even understand. But it's like unconscious. There's an old old timey saying. People will say, "I have a broken picker." Like the person they pick to be with them. Oh. <laughs> I think that's an ancient saying. That's an older one. But yeah. I think there's a lot of people who can relate to it, especially people who deal with, with trauma and abuse. They yeah. wonder, like, am I doing this to myself? Do I not think I deserve better? So, I mean, I mean, coming back to decision-making, right? I mean, end of the day, every action that's chosen is because the value of choosing that action outweighs the alternative. That's, that's why you chose it. The question is how that value gets calculated becomes an interesting statement, hmm. right? Like if you have a bad picker and you're choosing <laughs> the wrong romantic interest or partner time and time again, what is happening at the point of purchase, right? At the moment of checkout, when you're deciding to choose this person versus not choose them or choose person B, what is being calculated in your brain at that moment that is making the value of choosing this person greater than the alternative? End of the day, that's what has to be happening. Right. I don't know. How do you wrestle with this idea of what might someone not be valuing? And uh, value is a loaded term. I mean, that's totally. what I'm spending the rest of my career studying is how do we value things? And the brain has different currencies that somehow have to compare apples to oranges. Or we have a bunch of different parts of our brain that calculate value in different ways mm-hmm. that all might converge on choosing the same option or that might pose options against one another. Right. Yeah. Um, so what do you think is happening in the brain of an individual um, when they're choosing something that is not in their best interest? Uh, because I mean, because I when had, they pull the trigger, yeah. something in their brain's saying, I weighed out these options, or maybe I didn't weigh out all the options, but this is good enough. It's scratching an itch. It's satisfying something. Right. And the value of that might be outweighing the value of these other consequences that you might regret later. I want to be careful how I word this, because when I asked this question, I was not implying that if you're in an abusive relationship, that you somehow did it to yourself. Sure. I'm not saying that to anybody who's listening, but I do want to say, I think there are people out there who've had their self-worth compromised since a very young age, 
and there are people out there who don't believe they deserve better. Um, and I, I find, and even if it's unconscious, and they can look on the surface like complete narcissists, I deserve this, and this, and, 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 and I'm, I'm worth it, and but deep down, if you get them alone, and you have a real conversation, and you, you look at how much of their, um, I'll say like discretionary behavior, like what you can control, mm-hmm. um, is not good for you. Um, I think there's, I think, I think self-worth is an underrated topic that people don't know how to teach in school. I don't think people know how to teach it to their kids. I don't think people know how to teach it to themselves. I don't think it's sold to us. Like in America, everything's a product, right? Um, we see like 5,000 ads a day. Um, and it's all about your life sucks, but it'll be a little bit better if you buy this. Hmm. And, um, I don't think that's good for self-worth either. I'm a huge critic of the consumerist lifestyle. Um, and I think it has, you know, big social consequences. Yeah. So if I, think, I had to give a quick answer, I'd say self-worth. I think, and I think the, I, I just love talking about this concept of value because it's such a loaded term and how you calculate it and how you assign value to things is so interesting and so complex. The value of your self-worth your self-worth I feel like is so context dependent Mm. when you're evaluating your self-worth at a time point at in the midst of an abusive relationship or long after and you're reflecting on where your experiences have led you how you calculate your self-worth might be different and you might give yourself more credit or assign yourself higher self-worth and then that whole process might be completely different when now you're picking your next partner and how you calculate self-worth is so context dependent and it's Mm -hmm. so dynamic and so fluctuating that um, what's in the driver's seat or what's calculating what's good for you is in a constant state of flux. And I mentioned this a while ago, but um, getting into behavioral economics, I've been interested in studying when do we overvalue things and when do parts of our brain undervalue things Hmm. when when we're deciding what's in our best interest does parts of the brain kick in to high gear and are in the driver's seat of making a decision and that particular part of the brain by definition and by the way it's wired is ignoring a key aspect of information that maybe when you're reflecting on your self-worth or how that last relationship was other parts of the brain are now driving that put the attentional spotlight back on those other aspects that were ignored Um, I'm interested in understanding how this machine of an organ that we have is biased to turn up or turn down the value of every aspect of information that gets factored into choice. And sometimes it means we make irrational decisions, Mm -hmm. right? All of this is done without placing, placing blame on the individual, but it's trying, it's just understanding the neurobiology of, of rational and irrational choices defined by things that violate our own best interest. And man, there's so many different parts of the brain that are all chiming in at the same time. Yeah. And how can we have a say in, in what becomes dominant? Like we were talking about, I don't know if we said activating and deactivating, but how can we choose? Like, I'll, I'll do an old Cherokee proverb because I can't compete with you on neuroscience, but I like mythology. Okay, so um, this uh, grandfather was sitting with these little ones in, uh, you know, in their home structure, whatever it was. And uh, he says, everyone has in them a dark wolf and a light wolf, and they're fighting each other all the time. We'd call it maybe the devil or angel on the shoulder, but mm-hmm. I like this story. And uh, they fight all the time, and the dark wolf makes you do horrible things, and the light wolf makes you do good things. And the kid said, well, who wins this fight? And the grandfather said, the wolf that you feed. Mm. So how do we all feed our light wolf? 
I think I'm going to think about that for the rest of my career, yeah. right? That's what um, you're doing, right? Yeah. Oh, uh, that's, no, I, I think I like that better than the devil and angel on the shoulder. I do too. Um, yeah, that's the million dollar question. And um, is it something that, is it something that we can consciously do to help bias all roads of feeding towards the light wolf, right? Mm-hmm. Is there any little thing that we can do every day? Or are there certain experiences that we can reflect on in a way that the next time you have a steak and you're ready to feed one of them, it's going to more readily fall into the lap of the, of the light wolf, right? Can we, can we understand our, you even brought this up as far as mindfulness. Are there ways that we can set us up for success later? And can we do it with a little splash of understanding how the brain is chiming in so that we Mm -hmm. can give ourselves the best chances, right? (laughs) Those are the questions. Yeah, It's tough to, uh, I wonder if you can explain to a layperson at all the link between like the physical and the behavior. Like I'm, I don't even know how to visualize a neuron, let alone visualize the the journey from yeah. particle to molecule yeah. to I just uh, you know uh, climbed a ladder and finally changed out the battery on my carbon monoxide detector, which mm-hmm. you know I didn't for ages, but today I finally did the responsible thing and gave it a new battery. So what snapped in my head that I finally yeah. did something I know is objectively good for me? Yeah, um, I think the <laughs> the area of neuroscience that I've settled in on that is most interesting to me, I feel like is in the deepest parts of the abstract areas of the brain. There are people in neuroscience studying muscles and how muscles work, right? So let's just go, you, you pick your extreme if, and, and work your way backwards from you physically walking to, to change the, the battery or the light bulb. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's go from the muscle that's on your leg that gets you to walk right? And I'm this very specific set of muscles that make you turn right. Okay. And work our way back up. And we have nerves that are on those muscles that cause those muscles to contract. And those nerves run back up our legs, up into our spinal cord. And you can just trace that back every single brain cell back up into the brain. From our spinal cord, we have those neurons that pass through our brainstem and they come from parts of the brain that control motor function and movement. And you start going back upstream. Just keep jumping back upstream like, like salmon. Keep going back upstream on where did that information originate. Right? And you'll soon find yourself into a, a ball of yarn of things all integrating. So I'm not studying neuroscience at the level of how does parts of the brain execute motor function on its way out through the spinal cord down to the muscles. I'm interested in a couple steps before that. If you go back up a little bit, a few steps before that, parts of the brain that control movement, if you go back up a few steps, start getting into deeper and deeper parts of the brain, right? People call it the reptilian brain or whatever you want to call it, that are integrating multiple senses and memories all at once that are somehow calculating the decision that will ultimately get your muscles to turn right when you make a decision, right? And this gets into more abstract levels of selecting actions in the brain. Um, there are parts in the brain right before the motor areas of the brain that get down into these areas, of, other areas of the brain, like the nucleus accumbens or the hippocampus or the amygdala, um, that are also talking to other parts of the brain, like the prefrontal cortex. And if you keep going back up one more neuron and one more neuron that's talking to the next, it ends up becoming this intersecting highway 
that's a lot more complex than just this very straight single file row down to your muscles. Um, and this is what the area of neuroscience I'm interested in studying. If I skip that black box where all the memories and emotions and everything come together, and I come in from the other side, like your five senses, right? You have visual information coming in through your eyes, you're hearing sounds through your ears, you're smelling things through your nose, and those all are arriving at other parts of the brain where information is coming in, right? So just think about complete extremes of the nervous system. You have inputs, your five senses with information coming in, and then you have the outputs that are going to your muscles to make you move and interact with your environment. And if I go from the sensory side, information from your eyes that might be noticing a blinking light on your fire, your smoke detector that needs to change the battery, that's going to parts of the brain that process visual information. And if you follow that downstream one by one, that's slowly connecting to parts of the brain that store information about vision. And then that might store an association where you see this blinking light, it's tied to a memory that you might have to change this battery. And so now you start approaching the black box from both sides. And somewhere in the middle, there's now an integrated, complex computer circuit that is now taking sensory information, past experiences, and then the value of should you change this battery or not. Your brain somehow has to evaluate well, if I do this, this might happen. If I do this, this might happen. And that black box is capable of creating a simulation of multiple options you can choose from. And somehow the value of one of them wins out. And then you select the action that then spits out that information to get you to go do something. Mm -hmm. um, it's super complex, but it's that black box in the middle that I'm trying to disentangle. And that's the kind of neuroscience research that I like. Yeah. Um, but every step along the way, it's something you can follow physically from one neuron to the other, from the light, the blinking light hitting your eye into that black box of calculating a decision and then following those brain cells out to you executing a movement to go and cause a change in the environment. Um, we can follow that entire thread of logic all the way through and trying to understand the neuroscience behind that is complex, but we have a way to go about doing it. Mm -hmm. And somewhere in there is free will, right? Or have we given up on that? <laughs> That's, yeah, <laughs> We're right? back to philosophy again. It, it keeps coming back to that. There, well, there are hardcore... feel like, I'm not just a body. I'm not just a collection of neurochemical impulses. I'm a human being. I make decisions. Yeah. I think, um, I think that you will find the set of scientists that are hyper-reductionists and that we all we are are just a bunch of cells that are firing with certain degrees of probability, interacting with our environment. Is that provable? I, I think that that hyper-reductionist level, I think, takes out of the picture the us component of it, right? Do you say the mind versus the brain, or is that not how you would word it? Um, I think we chatted about this over the phone, right? Like mind and mind yeah. versus the brain. Yeah. And I think that they're kind of like two sides of the same coin. But I don't think it um, ought to cheapen what the mind means. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Well, we've covered a lot of territory. Yeah. So I'm going to give you the chance to have kind of the last finishing thoughts here. Anything positive or really mind-blowing around uh, uh, PTSD, trauma, addiction, things like that, um, that you're seeing in the space? Um, we touched on some of it, but for, for kind of final closing thoughts, if you want to leave people listening with something positive, um, and maybe it comes back to me trying to... Uh, highlight put a spotlight on this bridge from biology to biography it seems like you've taken a unique road in your academic career how can we get more people to think about things the way you do 
Um, I think if I've appreciated anything both in my research and in my interactions with the patients, I've begun to learn how to take care of, right? I mean, I'm, I'm only beginning the journey of, of encountering um, every individual on their path to recovery and learning what it's like practicing in psychiatry. Um, I think if I've learned anything from any of the patients I've encountered and bringing science into it, the brain and the human mind is such a powerful thing. And we are, I think, only beginning to scratch the surface of um, what it's capable of. Um, I, th- I really liked our discussion around this placebo effect or this idea that you are capable of changing your own trajectory. Um, and even in my interactions with kids in the school system or understanding kind of individuals as they're developing throughout their lifespan is that really providing people with this tool of knowledge that they're in control and capable of changing their own trajectory, even if they might need a crutch or help here and there, I think is drastically undersold. And I think it provides a lot of hope and optimism that there's capacity to change that is well within your own control. And I think we're just beginning to understand how to gain access to it more directly. Awesome. Well, I think it's been amazing having you on. It's been almost two hours. Yeah, gee, it felt like I'm awake. Yeah. <laughs> She's getting excited. All right, so thank you so much for coming on the program. Absolutely. Um, hope you like the other podcast episodes as they come out. The one that we just released uh, lately is uh, just interviewed a metal drummer, so it's going to be different every week. Sure. Sometimes there's musicians, sometimes artists, survivors, of course, will come and tell their stories. And uh, um, yeah, by the time this one airs, probably it's been a year of content out there. So thank you so much for coming out. If you could think of anyone else who you think might be willing to put up with me for an hour um that'd be awesome i think the world needs to hear this stuff thank you for having me get the music behind the mission hate becoming by kelly nicole on itunes and spotify if you guys haven't checked out the merch table join the movie buy the album get your kelly nicole band merch and donate what you can at kelly nicole foundation.org courage is from amplified